Welcome to Between a Rock and a Hard Place. I'm Hannah. And I'm Colleen. And we're going to tell you about our life in Iraq. It's going to be fun. I hope so. And now it's time for part two! That's right. We're going to do a quick review, because while for you and me, it's been like five minutes since we were talking about church history, for everybody else, it's probably been at least a week. I mean, it's going to take us at least that long to edit and transcribe and post. It's a lot of work. We really got to get on our production team to start moving faster. Hannah, we are the production team. (laughs) I know. We deserve a raise. (laughs) Okay, so we're talking about the Chaldean Church. Chaldean Church is the first, well, the Church of the East is the first breakoff from Mm -hmm. the Great Church, as it is known in church history. The Church of the East breaks off. Yes. And then the Church of the East breaks again with the Elia line. And the Shemun line. We're going to get there. Okay. We're going to talk about the Elia line first. Okay. And then the Shemun and then the Josephite. So the Elia line is part of the Church of the East. Uh, they maintain that mm-hmm. through now. They have never aligned with the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. Up to this point as we are talking about them in history. Not like this point that we are present in in history. Because we got to 1670, the 1670s. Okay. Elia line, still is the Church of the East, has never aligned with the Roman Catholic Church. Then we have the Shamoon line, which is the Chaldean Catholic. They started the Chaldean Catholic Church, and then they broke away from the Chaldean Catholic Church in 1672, denounced Rome, and formed the Assyrian Church of the East. Right. Okay, so now we have three church lines. Church of the East, which is the Elia line. Uh-huh. The Assyrian Church of the East, which is the Shemun line. And then the Josephite line are the Chaldean Catholics who have never split from Rome. Okay. Okay? So you got the Josephite line. They have always been Chaldean Catholics associated with Rome. Shemun line were Chaldean Catholics. Then they renounced Rome and are now the Assyrian Church of the East. Mm-hmm. And then the Elia line, which is the Church of the East. This helps explain some of the confusion that I had when people would ask me, like, is the church in northern Iraq Catholic? Because some of them are, and some of them are not. Right. And even the ones that are, aren't necessarily Catholic in the same way that, like... Roman Catholics Roman are. Catholics are. Right. Which we will get to and explain. There's also, like, Armenian... Not Armenian... Aramaic Orthodox Church that are a split off of, I'm pretty sure, the Assyrian. I don't really know. Their history is harder to suss out. All right. But since we're talking about Chaldeans, just remember those three. We got the Elia line, Shemun line, and the Josephite line. Great. Okay. We left them in 1672. We're going to come back to them in 1778. All right. Which is when the patriarch of the Elia line, so this is Eliah the 11th. This is a church of the East, Mm -hmm. never been associated with the Roman Catholic Church. He petitions the Pope to reunite, not reunite, but to unite with Rome and reunite with the Chaldean Catholics because the Elia line, the church of the East, is starting to dwindle. There are not very many of them left. And they live in the same place. 
Okay. Elia based in Alkosh, the Chaldean Catholic Church based in Mosul. Okay. Yeah. So he says, can we get back together? Back together. Exactly. He. Does it work? He, Elia the 11th, uh-huh. and his successor, Elia the 12th, both profess Catholic faith, and both of them were accepted into communion with the Chaldean Catholic slash Roman Catholic Church. Okay. So they said, yes, come back. Welcome. Yay. And then Elia the 11th dies. Mm-hmm. And Elia the 12th says, psych. Uh-oh. Just kidding. I don't want to be Catholic. I went out. See ya. Like, I got a taste of this and I don't want it. Or maybe I don't want to lose the power. Like, I'm just going to become a nobody. Right. Hmm. Not a nobody. He he takes his people with him. Well. Or tries to. He's afraid of becoming a nobody if right. he was, like, subsumed into the Roman Catholic world. Right. So he says, forget about it. I'm, I'm out of here. Okay. He is opposed... By this guy named Johanna Hormidz. It's really hard for me to say his name. Is that the same name as the guy at the Alkosh Alkosh Monastery? The Hormuzd thing? Yeah! Hey! Do you want to explain that? Uh, no. Okay. (laughs) Like, I just recognize the name, and it's, like, all over, like, the monastery, and it's, like, the Hormuzd monastery and like the church that's there has like his name on stuff that's mm-hmm. all i really mm-hmm. know okay he was a monk at the alkosh monastery uh-huh and he said no 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 Elia, you said you were going to be catholic mm-hmm. you brought all of us into this we were in agreement we're staying with the catholic chaldean church all right so he took a lot of those Elia line followers mm-hmm. and kept them in communion with the Roman Catholic, Chaldean Catholic Church. All right. He becomes kind of their default leader because of this. Uh-huh. But he's not recognized as the patriarch of Alkosh. Right. For a lot of reasons, most of them political. Mm-hmm. They don't want to offend the Chaldean patriarch of Mosul by mm-hmm. then... Lessening his power by giving someone else the patriarchy of Alkosh. Right. So the Pope recognize him, recognizes him as the administrator of the Catholic patriarchic. Okay. Patriarchate. This is a lot of Catholic things that I don't understand. Uh-huh. My understanding is that, like, he's not the spiritual leader, but he's kind of the, like, administrative deals with the details of the running of the church organizer yeah i mean that's valuable it is valuable both of those roles it's still pretty powerful role Mm -hmm. this upsets the josephite line remember that line that has always been staying with the roman catholics once the chaldean catholic church Uh split chaldean syrian and so when the alia line like was joining them again they don't really want to give up their power to the alia line or right well and they looked at johanna hormids Mm -hmm. and said we don't believe that he's really catholic (laughs) like we don't believe he genuinely wants to do this 
we think it's a power grab. We think he's gonna pull the Chaldean Catholics out of the Catholic, the Chaldean Catholic Church and make them Assyrian. Okay. In spite of the fact that he did the exact opposite of that previous to this. Okay. So they're kind of, they're a little upset. Yeah. With Rome. Yeah. So Rome withdraws the administrator role from Johanna. Uh, does that make all the people underneath him kind of angry and upset? Mm, no. Oh, okay. I mean, probably, but not in a way that really matters. Not in a way that impacts splits and joins of churches. Right. Because Johanna Hormidst did want his people to continue to be in the Roman Catholic Church, and so he's not going to kick up a fuss about it necessarily. He was genuine, which is why he gets everything named after him, because he's a bit of a hero to them. So they take the admin role from Johanna, and they give it to Joseph V of that Josephite line. Neither of them are appointed as patriarch, so there is no patriarch of Mosul al Kosh at this time. There's just the administrator of the pa- patriarchate. Okay. So they're kind of the leader, like they're they're running the show, mm-hmm. but they're not like in charge of everything. Gotcha. Is, is there anybody in charge? No. Oh. This doesn't last long. Okay. Okay? So that happens in... Uh, this is happening in, like, the early 18... 18... 18s, Okay. Around there. In 1828, Joseph V, the mm-hmm. administrator of the Catholic Patriarchate, mm-hmm. dies. Uh-huh. And in 1830, Johanna Hormidst, still dude. alive, still alive, is appointed patriarch. Oh. So because he bided his time and let things be, he gets appointed patriarch because he outlives the Josephite line, essentially. Okay. His patriarchy, which is non-hereditary. Right. Okay, an appointed patriarch every year, not someone related to him, has continued to lead the Chaldean church unbroken since 1830. Okay. This is yet another reason why so many things are named after him. He really is seen as kind of the leader who brought all the Chaldean Catholics back together. The unifier. The unifier of the patriarchal line. Okay. So, important guy. Yeah. No wonder his name's all over. Right. So, we got the Shamoon and Josephite line. What happens to them? They split they and kind of come back together. and come back together. We don't really know at this point in our podcast what happens to the Elia line. The part that started to join and then... Right. And then left And again. then left again. Right. They die out in 1804. Ah. Elia XII dies, and he didn't have enough people following him, but they felt like they could appoint a successor. So they kind of all went, the Assyrians, the Assyrian Church of the East still exists, pretty small, but everyone else who split off from the Chaldean Catholic Church has come back to the Chaldean Catholic Church. All right. Or the line has died out. And we don't know what happened to them. Right. They got absorbed into something else. Mm-hmm. 
So this continues. There aren't really any church splits from 1830 when Johannes Hormuzd kind of con conglomerates everybody back together. Okay. So for the last, what is that, 290 years of Catholic? Chaldean history, they've all kind of stayed together. Unified. Awesome. As part of the Roman Catholic Church, this is where it gets interesting. But I thought it was all, like, tidy now. It's all tidy. It's all tidy. I learned some things about the Roman Catholic Church, which I still don't understand. Okay? Yeah, we're Protestants. We're Protestants. I don't think I've ever even set foot in a Catholic Church. Oh. I have. Lots of them. You haven't even gone on, like, a tour of one? Somewhere in Europe? No. Like, when I spent time in Europe, I spent most of my time outside. Because oh. I was tired of being inside. And Oh, no! I've been... No, that's an Anglican church. No, I don't think I've ever been in a Roman Catholic church. <laughs> Weird. We may have to make a trip out just so that you can have an experience. I mean, there's one really close to here. We yeah. probably should just go. Um... So, we're going to wade into what the difference is between Roman Catholic Church and Chaldean Catholic Church. Hey, this is Dave. I'd love to have you donate to our ministry, and you can do that on our website. So we have the Roman Catholic Church and the Chaldean Church. Chaldean Catholic Church, which is under the Roman Catholic Church. Right. Again... I don't understand the liturgy or traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. I'm probably going to get some things wrong I, because I don't have any experience with that. All right. And my brain was exploding from all of this church history, so I didn't <laughs> really take the time to research it. All right. I did look at the Chaldean church rites and liturgy, so I kind of understand that. I don't really understand how it's different. So it's not so much going to be a comparison as this is what the Chaldean Church does that probably the Roman Catholic Church doesn't do. Okay. There are a few things, though, that you do know are major differences. Like oh, sure. Like the language, right? Yes. So the Catholic Church, the language of the Church was Latin mm -hmm. at the time when the Chaldean Church came back into the Catholic Church. Part of the the deal was that since the Romans recognized the Chaldeans as maintaining most church traditions, they were like, mm, "You don't have to. You don't have to do your liturgy in Latin. You can keep doing it in the language that you've been doing it in for centuries, which is Eastern Syriac." Okay. Okay. So I watched a. Chaldean Catholic Church service, an Easter service, I think. Yeah? And definitely not in Latin. Okay. Didn't understand anything that was happening. <laughs> Do you have a link to that video that we can post in the yes. show notes? Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes for sure. Um, so Eastern Syriac is their liturgical language. It's not necessarily the language that everyone speaks, just like not everyone in the Catholic Church spoke Latin. Right. But it's like the language that they use to read the Bible and pray and do church things. Do church things in. 
So this liturgy, this Eastern Syriac liturgy, is not just linguistically different. The liturgy is actually written from a different church than the Roman Catholic liturgy. Okay. So they're similar, mm-hmm. but they have different writers. Right. And there are some things that are different mm-hmm. about them. The church in Edessa is the tradition that the Chaldean Catholics follow. And it was written by the two disciples of St. Thomas. Okay. So St. Thomas establishes the church, makes two disciples who kind of lead the church in the Middle East. They are considered saints in the Chaldean church. Right. The Catholic church recognizes one of them probably. It was hard for me to, like, figure that out. Okay. Because in the Chaldean church, he's known as Saint Adai. Mm-hmm. Which the... The Catholic Church has a saint that probably had that same name originally, but then was westernized into Thaddeus. All right. So St. Thaddeus is recognized by the Roman Catholic Church and might be the same guy as St. Adai in the Chaldean Catholic Church. Okay. Okay. So that's one. I mean, the Western linguistic... Changes to names and places is confusing. Widespread. Indeed. So that's one of the saints that mm-hmm. helped write this liturgy. The other one is Saint Mari, mm-hmm. uh, also known as Mares or Palut, and he is not recognized by the Roman tradition. Okay. But definitely a saint in Chaldean Catholic Church. So these two guys wrote a liturgy, and it is the liturgy that has been used by the Church of the East than the Chaldean Church since it was written in 432 or whatever. Okay, so one of the other differences is maybe these two groups have different saints. Yes. In addition to their different liturgies. Right, because they had those centuries of separate traditions being built between the Roman and the Chaldean Catholic, so there are different saints for Mm -hmm. sure. Uh, again, I didn't get into all of that because it's very complicated. Fair. And we're, we're trying to keep it simple. So those are the two saints that St. Thomas appointed to lead the church after he left. They wrote the liturgy. As far as I can tell, the only real differences when both are translated into English both mm-hmm. the Latin and the Syriac, East Syriac, is that there are some differences in wording in the Eucharist service. Okay. Which I suspect kind of harkens back to that conflict with Nestorius. Mm-hmm. And the hypostatic union, then what that means and what that looks like. I think he maybe wanted the words of the Eucharist service to look different, which maybe led to the misunderstanding which led to the split. The Catholic Church looked at that, the Roman Catholic Church looked at that and said, it's fine. It's not a big deal. Keep it. The prayers that are given, the liturgical prayers, are much longer. Really? Much more elaborate and focused differently than the Roman Catholic ones. What are some of the things they focus on? I don't really know. 
they're all in Syrian. But, like, didn't you read some translation? No. Oh, okay. They're not translate. Like, I couldn't find any of this translated in any way. And even if I had, I wouldn't really know how they were different from Roman Catholic prayers. True. So, there's, like, a different focus mood of the prayers mm. than them from the Roman Catholic one. Um, there's also different in the vestments of the priests and what they wear. Okay. Which is no surprise. The music that is used is very different. I mean, that makes sense too, as far as like clothing and music and language all being very culturally defined rather than morally defined. Right. Yeah. So the... Chaldean Catholic Church music is very Middle Eastern. Yeah. It's, like, it's very beautiful, but it is definitely not, like... If a Roman Catholic person went to a Chaldean Catholic Church, they probably would not recognize it as being the same. Okay. Aside from that, you know, they do Holy Communion, and the the rites generally are the same. Mm -hmm. There's a priest, all those things. Other than that, they would be like, nope, it's not the same. Don't understand. One of the things that makes it different is that there are additional feast days or variations on saints' days. More holidays. Win. Definitely a win. <laughs> sort of. Uh-oh. There's always a catch, isn't there? The big, the big main difference is that the Chaldean Catholic Church follows what they call the Fast of the Ninevites, or the Fast of Jonah. Okay, I mean, that makes sense. They're mm -hmm. right next to, or in Mosul, which is modern-day Nineveh. Mm -hmm. Jonah's tomb is there. Like, this seems like it would be something that they would connect to. Right. And the point of the fast is that... Uh, it, they're remembering or commemorating the repentance of Nineveh. Yeah. So I had several Chaldean Christian friends in Iraq mm -hmm. who would do, they called it the Jonah Fast. Okay. Who would do the Jonah Fast. Um, and it's three days with no food and no water. Okay. And not in the Ramadan sense of during the day. It was like none. All through the day and the night, yes. through all those days. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it usually happened around Easterish time. I, I remember it. I'm going to misremember this now. I remember it being a spring fast. Okay. And I also <laughs> had one of my uh, Muslim friends, mm -hmm. one of my first years living in Iraq, who came up to me when this fast was happening for her Christian friends and was like, how are you doing? How is your fast? And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm not fasting. And she was like, but you're a Christian. Ah. I was like, yes, but I, I've never even heard of the fast of Jonah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't heard of it until you mentioned it just now. Because there just aren't that many Christians in the city in Iraq that I lived in. Right. And so I ended up, like, talking to one of my Chaldean Christian friends and being like, are you fasting? 
And they were like, yes, of course we're fasting. Aren't you fasting? And I was like, no. No. What, what, what is this? Yeah. And they're like, well, we fast for three days because Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. And so then he came and brought our people back to God. And I was like, so this is like an Old Testament fast. It's kind of beautiful. It is. It is. And the Catholic Church was definitely like, keep that. That is uniquely yours. Keep it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the big one. The big difference. There are yeah. some variations in saints' days as well. More having to do with when those saints' days fall. And like when Easter falls. and Which makes a lot of sense too if you haven't had synchronized calendars and... All of that is super, super common in communication across history of different areas. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, the fast of the Ninevites is the big one. Um, The other big difference, which was happening when the Chaldean Church rejoined the Catholic Church, is that they were using leavened bread for communion. Oh, where traditionally the Catholic Church uses unleavened bread. Right. The Chaldean Church is not doing this so much anymore. They've switched over to the unleavened mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. The Assyrian Church was doing it for a while, and it is unclear to me if they continue to do it. They continue to use, use leavened, leavened bread. bread. Okay. But I wanted to talk about this because I think the story is kind of cool. Yeah. About how this started. So, the tradition for leavened bread in the Chaldean church is that when St. Thomas came and established the church, the Church of the East Mm -hmm. at the time, he brought with him some of the dough from the bread that was used when Jesus... It was either, like, from the Last Supper... Which didn't make sense to me because that wouldn't have been leavened bread. Right. Or from when they eat bread and fish with Jesus after his resurrection. Oh, okay. So he brought some of some of that bread yeast dough. Like the sourdough starter? Kind of like a sourdough starter, yes. His, his bread dough. And so when he made bread for their first communion, he took a piece of that dough and made bread with that yeast from that original starter dough. Uh-huh. So, yes, it's a little bit like holy sourdough bread. <laughs> it's like the friendship bread of forever Right. Mm-hmm. And so then when that dough was made from the starter, mm-hmm. they took a piece of that dough and saved it for the next week's communion bread. Right. And then they would take a piece of that dough and save it for the next week's communion bread. Huh. So there's kind of this tradition of the yeast of this bread is holy because it came from Jesus. Fascinating. They're not saying that we've been using the same yeast that Jesus used for thousands of years. But they're saying a little bit of that yeast is mixed in with each bread that we make because it has grown the new starter for the next week's bread. Yeah. And so to them, the leavened bread was holy because it came from the yeast of the bread that Jesus this made. This tradition that like ties them back to Christ himself. Like, yeah. that's cool. 
Which I was like, this is fascinating. And I a little bit can't believe they gave it up. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe the starter died at some point And they or, were just like, well, we're going to go back to the Catholic way. <laughs> I don't know. Or, like, how far had it spread out among all those different churches? Right. And was it almost a practical, like, we can't keep... We can't continue doing, doing this. this. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I really... And it's a cool story. It is a really cool story. And it's one of those things that I'm like, do, do Chaldean Catholics remember that story now? Oh, yeah. Since they haven't been using the leavened bread. And I don't think it was a, like, the church patriarch was like, look, we're going to switch to unleavened bread. I think it just kind of fell out of fashion, hmm. as it were. And, you know, maybe as that story was lost, it was like, well, I mean, they use unleavened bread in scripture. Like, right. Let's do that. Let's, let's do that instead. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us at Servant Group International on Facebook or Instagram, and you should check out our blog and complete transcripts over at servantgroup.org. And it's really helpful for us if you share our podcast or leave a review on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. It helps us know that people are listening, and you can let us know what you want to hear next. Thanks Thanks for for listening. Oof. <laughs> All right, I gotta take a drink because I'm losing my voice. It's up. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs>